hymnal as we are considering that very subject uh, for quite some time, really, Romans chapter 5 through 8, the theme being the assurance which justification gives. We're looking at two verses uh, this morning, just Romans chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. For the sake of continuity, I want to read verse 12. So verses 12 through 14. Hear the word of God. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. And let us pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we ask you now that through the preaching uh, that your grace might be apparent both in me, in the preaching, and in the people as they exercise the the hearing of faith. Dear Lord, uh, we are are conscious that uh, we can speak of these things and we can hear of these things in a way which is cold and which is formal. But we pray that uh, just as we will later do in the Lord's Supper, so here that We would have a lively and a warm devotion to you as we go about these things. uh, And that you would be present, blessing us through them, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we continue to go on with our uh, consideration of these verses, verses which, uh, as Hugh Martin describes, enable us to have... uh, a large view of the covenants, or, or I think he said, uh, the preaching of the disruption ministers uh, was noted for the large place they assigned to the covenants. Uh, and so here is covenantal preaching, here is covenantal uh, theology at, at play. And let us learn to see the value of that. That's where we are. As we continue to unfold that, we need to bear two things in mind. And the first is the overarching Uh, point or theme of the passage, and that is the relation of all to the one. John Murray calls that the principle of solidarity. The all are related to the one. The all are found in the one, which explains on the one hand how sin and death came into the world by the one, the one man sin, Adam. But it also explains on the other side, and this is where the doctrine of the covenants is ultimately so helpful to us, It explains how and why salvation come to mankind through the one man, Jesus Christ. So that's the overarching thought of the passage, the importance of the of all in relation to the one. And you will never understand how it is this one man, Jesus Christ, is able to save the many unless you understand that principle. But the second thing to bear in mind, more particularly and more narrowly, as we look at verses 12 through 13, is what Paul uh, had just said in verse 12. And verse 12 really uh, introduces the, the main thought uh, to be explained. And verses 13 and 14 then, which are the focus of the sermon, are simply uh, to be seen, if you remember, as part of this larger parenthesis that begins in verse 13. Verses 13 and 14 are an explanation of what was said in verse 12, which was the focus of the last sermon. Let me briefly review the teaching of verse 12 and then show how verses 13 and 14 explain the teaching of that verse. 
In verse 12, Paul tells us that sin entered the world by the sin of the one man, Adam, and thus death death through sin. Now, we're talking about Adam alone uh, initially. The reason Adam died was because he sinned. In other words, the fact of death uh, for Adam was not automatic. He was not created with death in mind. He was meant to live and to live forever. But his death and the tragedy of his death is to be seen on account of his sin. The one man dies because of sin. But Paul goes on with this thought to describe in his covenantal theology that therefore death spread to all because all sinned, which we saw meant not that all sinned personally. That is not why all men die in the final analysis, not because we are personally sinners, but because all sinned in Adam. And thus there, or I could say our participation in his sin accounts for the fact that we die along with Adam. That is the teaching of uh, Romans chapter 5 verse 12. That is the doctrine of original sin. And it is that thought, the death of all, on account of Adam's sin, that is uh, what Paul goes on to clarify and explain in verses 13 and 14. Again, the fact in particular that all die. Or as I described it last time, the universality of death. Verse 12 ends with the thought, all die because all sinned. And verses 13 and 14 then are given as a parenthesis to clarify the sense in which that is true. All die because all sinned. And let me begin by saying then, as we look at these two verses, that they're very difficult. Uh, some of the most difficult verses in Romans. There seem uh, to be a variety of ways to understand or interpret them. I find that the commentators themselves do not entirely agree on every point, And it is certainly possible that you will either think or you will say to me after the sermon that you didn't quite agree with me on a particular point. I'm prepared for that, especially when I find uh, men like, for instance, John Murray and Charles Hodge not entirely in agreement on precise points in this passage. But I think that the best way uh, to interpret this, and I think we can all agree about this, the, the best way to interpret what is said in verses 13 and 14, acknowledging they are very difficult to understand, is to keep in mind what Paul is seeking to establish, the point that he is seeking to prove. To see verses 13 and 14, in other words, in relation to verse 12, as an explanation of the truth set forth in that verse. And again, the key point of that verse that he is seeking to establish and then to explain in the later verses is simply the fact that all die. The universality of death. And the way that Paul seeks to establish and explain this point is by pointing to a point in history where this was most apparent. And the period that he chooses is the period from Adam to Moses before the law was given. Of that period, he says first that sin was in the world. He says, for until the law, sin was in the world. That's where we begin. Until the law simply means until the law was given through Moses. 
The period under consideration, let me say again, is from Adam's first transgression in the garden until the law was given at Sinai, as is apparent from verse 14, where he says death reigned from Adam to Moses. Moses being the one who gave the law. During that period, Paul says, sin was in the world. It had entered through Adam's sin, verse 12, and now it was in the world. Now it was a potent force. All of Adam's descendants now inherited from him a sinful nature and participated uh, with him in his sinfulness. Now that sin had entered. Once sin entered through Adam's sin, all men began to sin. And that is precisely the account that we read following Adam's transgression in chapters 4 through 6 of uh, of Genesis, very rapidly describing the descent of the world that then was into a, uh, a state of profound and irredeemable sinfulness, so that the Lord destroyed the world. Sin was in the world. Yes, even before the law was given, even before that is, sin was clearly defined and prohibited by God through Moses, sin was in the world. And the relevance of this initial point in verse 13 to the overarching point being made is that the sin of all must be seen in relation to the sin of Adam. Something which is always true, a truth that has already been established in verse 12. And again, Paul is merely seeking to clarify how that is so by an illustration. To see how this was so before the law was given through Moses clarifies the sense in which it is Adam's sin that determines the fate of all. Even before the law was given, sin was in the world. Therefore, it was not man's relation to Moses that determines that he is a sinner. It is not that he is seen as a transgressor of the law of Moses. How can that be since sin was in the world before that law was given? The presence of sin in the world, therefore, had nothing to do with Moses at this point. It had everything to do with Adam. And so what determines man's status as a sinner and the presence of sin in the world is the sin of Adam and man's relation to Adam. Something which is always true and was always true, but it's especially clear when you look at this particular period in history. But Paul then says something as a second point, which is fascinating. He says, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Now, that is stated in the adversative sense. It's stated as a contrast to the prior point. Sin was in the world, yet there was no law yet given. In what sense was it therefore imputed and counted as sin and punished as sin? Well, it wasn't imputed or counted as transgression of the law of Moses for that law had not yet been given and yet Paul says sin cannot be imputed where there is no law indeed it cannot going back to what he says in in chapter 4 verse 15 it cannot even be called properly sin unless it is seen as a violation of some law and yet sin was in the world that's his first assertion well Paul clearly does not mean That sin was not imputed because the law had not been given through Moses. He means merely that it could not be called or imputed as sin. 
It would not be just to treat men as sinners if there was no law. But since that is impossible, seeing that sin was imputed quite clearly at this period of history, that God was regarding men as sinners, he was counting them as sinners, he was punishing them as sinners, that must mean that there was another law in force. Not the law of Moses, but another. The sin, therefore, which was imputed was not that which was seen as the transgression of the law of Moses, but it was rather the transgression and the sin of Adam in the garden in violation of the law which God gave there. That is what explains the presence of sin in the world. Now, again, let me say, technically, that is true of everyone. That is true of me and that is true of you and everyone who's ever lived in this world. Even those, in other words, who sinned after the law of Moses was given. It was not their sin in violation of the law of Moses that determines their guilt. That is not the sin which is imputed to them. But it was, as for those before, the guilt of Adam's sin that is imputed to them. Again, the doctrine of original sin. All men die. All men are condemned. All men are regarded as sinners because Adam sinned. That is the teaching of Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. But nothing makes this point stand out with such clarity, such obvious clarity as considering the state of men before the law was even given. What was it that determined their state and their status of, uh, as sinners and the fact that they sinned? Not the fact that the law was revealed to them. It is clear that their sin was not in violation of a revealed law, which we'll later see. What clarifies and explains the presence of sin in the world and the fact that God regarded men as sinners was their participation in Adam's sin. Their following in his footsteps. Men were then living in the darkness of Adam's sin. That is the account of Genesis chapters 1 through 6 and even beyond. And their whole world was then determined by that single sin. Again, we must be clear that that remained true and that remains true even after Moses gave the law. The sin which is imputed to mankind and which condemns them is still that of Adam. But this point stands out most clearly as a point of illustration when you look just at that period between Adam and the giving of the law. The thought of verse 13 therefore becomes... Sin was in the world before the law was given. Yes, and sin is not imputed where there is no law. But since sin was imputed, since men were then regarded as sinners by God, even before the law was given, it is evident that there was a law then in force. And that law was that which was given to Adam and which he broke. And the guilt of that sin was then imputed to those who lived from the time of his sin until the law was given. And even beyond, we would say, but that takes us beyond the more narrow point of these verses. Nevertheless, as a third point, he says, going now to verse 14, and again stating uh, the case in the adversative, that is, as a point of contrast, nevertheless, he says, death reigned from Adam to Moses. 
Now we begin to see that the real point here that Paul is after is explaining to us the universality of death, the fact that all men die. The thought here should be obvious. The the sin which was imputed to men was not that in violation to Moses' law, since that had not yet been given. And yet, even in the absence of that law, Paul says, men still died. Death still reigned in the lives of men. Its power and its reign were known by all. One sin entered the world by Adam's sin. Yet, he says, even though the law was not yet given and sin cannot be imputed where there is no law, nevertheless, all still died in that period. They died, let me say again, not because there was no law, for how can that be? But they died because of Adam. Just as the fact that sin was in the world could be traced to him as well. Even in the absence of Moses' law, all were sinners and all died. How else can you account for that fact? Except for by Adam's sin and the relation of all to him. Even before God gave the law through Moses, it was nevertheless true that all died because of Adam. You get the idea. So Paul is establishing a difference Between those who lived before the law was given and those who lived after. Those who lived before Moses gave the law, or God gave the law through Moses, I should say, still had sin imputed and they still died. They were still regarded by God as sinners, even without the law expressly revealed to them because of their relation to Adam. But it's what is said next as a fourth point. That is particularly interesting because he goes on to distress their dissimilarity to Adam in his sin, even as they shared in his fate. He says, and this is the final, well, it isn't the final, it's it's the, the next to last thing he says, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam. That is, death reigned over them even as their sin differed. From Adam's. Of course, you notice it was not the absence of sin that accounts for the difference. It is not that Adam was a sinner and they weren't. That is not the point of contrast. Both were seen as transgressors, but the difference must be found elsewhere. And there's two possible ways to understand this difference. The more common and popular, and I think the correct view, though there is something to be said for the second view is uh, that mankind in this intervening period from Adam to Moses sinned in darkness. That's the important thought to grasp. They sinned in darkness. When they sinned, in other words, it was not against uh, the clear light of a revealed law. God was not speaking to man in those days. They lived in the darkness of Adam's sin. In that sense... Their sin resembles that of the Gentiles, which Paul describes in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Those uh, who do not have the law, but their conscience is a law unto them. Those who do not have the privilege of God's law to guide them and direct them, defining and curtailing their sin as Adam did. No, they were left, as I said, in the darkness of Adam's sin. And and some men, even today, you might say, are living in that very darkness. And so their sin, Paul is saying, differed from Adam's in a very important respect. 
It was that they did not sin against a known law. They sinned against conscience, but not against revelation. And that places them in a different category. They did not have the Ten Commandments, as God later gave through Moses. Nor did they have God speaking to them in the garden, as Adam did. And yet the fact remains, Paul says, again, the big point, they still died. Everyone died. And what accounts for this, Paul is saying, is not their sin against a known law. Since that was not true. It is rather, as we have seen, simply the fact of Adam's sin. And that Adam's sin was imputed to them. And that they were held uh, responsible for Adam's sin. The guilt of Adam's sin imputed to all and thus all die and all are condemned. There is covenantal theology. Now, the second interpretation, which I don't know how common it is, but I do find that the commentators at least feel obliged to mention this. And and one of you, at least uh, last Sunday, began to think about it, speaking to me about it. And that is that Paul is here speaking of infants. He's looking at this period still from Adam to Moses, but he's making a further distinction. All men in this period died because of their relation to Adam and not to Moses. But even among that class, a further distinction can be made. So he's narrowing his focus even further. And he is describing there the case of infants, the infants who died in the period between Adam and Moses. Those, in other words, who never had a chance to sin and yet they still died, or at least to live a life of sin, let us say. An infant can still sin in the womb uh, by its sinful nature. But you get the idea. There is this obvious difference between uh, someone who never even had a chance to live a life of sin and Adam who sinned so deliberately against God with all the advantages of the garden. Now, I, I don't hold this view. I don't think at least is the primary reference, although I do still think it's possible uh, to, to see these verses in this way and to use this verse as a way of explaining what happens to infants. Infants who die. Explaining why it is they die. Well, they die not on account of transgression to a known law. We can say that much at least. No, they die for another reason. The reason infants die is because of Adam's sin. Now, that is true, whether you see it as the primary reference here or not. But in either case, however you understand this differentiation that Paul is making uh, in the second part of verse 14, you see that Paul is highlighting a group, whether those who lived from Adam to Moses, all men, or uh, infants more narrowly within that group. He's highlighting a group whose sin differed from that of Adam. And this proves that the reason we die is not simply that we're sinners like Adam. It is not the fact of our similarity to Adam's sin that that accounts for the fact of the similarity of outcome, namely death. No, in many cases, Paul says, to a certain degree, the opposite is actually true. Some do not sin, he says, however you define that, in the likeness of Adam's sin. Some must be placed in a separate category. Their sin and Adam's sin are said to differ in some respect. And yet, those in that category still die. Not because their sin resembles Adam's, but rather and simply because of Adam's sin imputed to them and to all. 
That is the teaching of Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. Very difficult, and which I have stated as clearly as I possibly can, though uh, I'm not sure if I succeeded. Uh, but don't tell me at the door. <laughs> Let me try to unpack the import of this idea. The fact that all die because Adam sinned. That's what we are considering. Everyone. That is the point that he's seeking to establish. What we need to accept as the clear teaching of scripture and as a key peg in our covenantal theology. Death spread to all because all sinned. Verse 12. Not in the likeness of Adam. Not in every case. For many, in one important respect, did not. They were unlike Adam in his sin and yet they still die. Why? Because when Adam sinned, they sinned in Adam. We sinned in Adam. Everyone. Even those before, who lived before the law was given. And this explains, I'll say again, whether you see this as primarily in view or not, this does explain why infants die, even in the womb. Which is a very unpleasant thought, I know. But it must be faced nonetheless. One of the great tragedies uh, of human existence We think about the fact that all die. And how can we not think of infants especially? Why is it that they die? And what is your answer to that? It's because of Adam's sin. That's the teaching of scripture. And even in their case, the guilt of that sin is imputed to them. And they are thus made to die as the wages of Adam's sin. Well, I know what you're going to ask me next. Do they go to heaven? But don't ask me that. I offer no light where scripture is silent. I can only tell you why they die. Yes, even before they have a chance to live a life of sin. Let me say again, God holds them responsible for Adam's sin. All die because Adam sinned. And so we must realize in the case of all. Infants and old alike, we do not die for personal sins committed. We are not, in other words, born into a situation where our slate is clean and God is reserving the judgment of death until we commit the first act of personal sin. That is the heresy or the error of Pelagianism. And I suppose it holds out the hope in individual cases that some man might be able to live forever on the, on the merits of his own righteousness. And, and you see what that also means. It means that that man stands outside of any need of salvation. It is hypothetically possible according to that view. But if that view were true, it would fail to explain uh, the death of many. Why infants die for one thing. And again, let me say, it would place, in fact, not hypothetically, but it would place all men outside of the need of salvation until they committed the first personal act of sin. They are not born in need of salvation. They only stand in need of salvation once they commit the first personal act of sin. Suspending all, in essence, along with Adam, under a covenant of works. But scripture tells a different story. It tells us, in fact, that we are born in sin. And actually, it's even clearer than that. It says we are conceived in sin. Our very existence begins in sin. 
And when we are born, we are born into the very world in which sin exists and in which death is reigning. And we are all made to partake of those two awful realities, the universality of sin, the universality of death. We are all born looking first at the universality of sin. We, all, we are all born uh, with ingrained in our very natures an invincible propensity to sin. None of us can escape this. None of us, as Pelagius says, were born with a blank slate. Sin was already woven into the very fabric of our being and of our wills. This is not something a single person can escape on his own. And it is because of Adam's sin that we sin and our relation to him, the universality of sin. But even then, it is not the universality of sin that is the primary point in view, but rather the universality of death. Granting that all alike are sinners from the moment they are conceived, we must account for the universality of death. And the simple fact is that death does not enter into our personal existence and begin to reign only once we have begun to sin. The fact is rather that death, like sin, is already reigning. And it has been doing so ever since sin entered the world by Adam's sin. It is the inevitable outcome of everyone. A sentence that has been already passed upon all, even before they commit the first sin. Why? Because in Adam all die, verse 15. Or just as by one sin the many were made sinners, verse 19. It all amounts to the same thing. All sin and all die because of their participation in Adam's sin and thus Adam's death. And that is the only fact that accounts for every case of death whether those who lived from Adam to Moses or infants or anyone else, what causes death to reign in this world for all is not personal sins committed, but it is simply Adam's sin. That is the doctrine of original sin properly understood. But that does not mean, and this will stand out more clearly when we come to the other side, Uh, Of Jesus Christ. That he not only atones for the sin of the one. But of the many. It does not mean. That we are not uh, personally responsible for our sins. That that personal sin is thereby excusable. Whether from Adam to Moses. Or after Moses. Up to our own time. It does not mean that I am held accountable. Only for Adam's sins and not my own. That is not the teaching of these verses either. Paul is not saying, in other words, that men are thereby excusable, those who sin without the clear light of God's revelation. He clearly, in fact, says the reverse in chapter 2. But the teaching is merely that even though the way men sin differs greatly, nonetheless, the outcome is the same for all. And that is because, as these verses teach, before I ever sinned, Before I ever committed the first transgression of God's law, the sentence of condemnation and death had already been passed upon all because all sinned in Adam. And here I find Hodge's explanation particularly helpful. Charles Hodge in his commentary on Romans, he says this. Men begin to exist out of communion with God. Paul tells us why it is. It is because we all fell in Adam. It is for the one offense 
of the one man that all thus die. The covenant being formed with Adam, not only for himself, but also for his posterity. His act was, in virtue of this relation, regarded as our act. God withdrew from us as he did from him. In consequence of this withdrawing, we begin to exist in moral darkness. The sin of Adam therefore ruined us. It's the word begin that I find so helpful there. We begin, we start out with this amazing disadvantage. The presence of sin, the propensity to sin, and the inevitability of death. How do you account for it? There's only one answer, the sin of Adam. But it is the last thing, is the fifth point that Paul says that is so hopeful and so helpful, especially in the framework of our covenantal theology. And so I would say the real force and the real value of this teaching is found in this final phrase concerning Adam. Speaking of the transgression of Adam, he says, who is a type of him who was to come? Thus far, verses 12 through 14, Paul has only spoken of Adam. If you remember, I said he began a comparison that he does not actually complete. It's Adam only in verses 12 through 14 until the end. But now at last, when he says he's a type of him who was to come, we find Christ is mentioned. And we discover now the reason that the sin of Adam is so helpful and so valuable in understanding our grasp of justification by faith, which is the cardinal teaching of this, of this, uh, this book. And understanding the doctrine of justification uh, being the key to arriving at an assurance and a certainty of salvation, which is what is primarily in view in chapters 5 through 8. The sin of Adam, I'm saying, helps us to see justification by faith. And the reason is because Adam is a type of Christ. It is because, in other words, our justification in Christ, the one man, mirrors our condemnation in Adam. The fact that we die in Adam typologically resembles the way that we live and are justified in the one man, Jesus Christ. Adam sins and thus we are made to die for his sin. But likewise, Paul says, and in a much more glorious way, Christ obeys and we are made thus to live by his obedience. Only as men are made to die, now as a second point of comparison or typology, men who did not sin in the likeness of Adam's sin, being held account nonetheless for his sin. Likewise, we can also say, that in Christ many are justified who did not obey in the likeness of his righteousness. Two points of comparison. Two points of typology. And thus the parallel between Adam and Christ is apparent in these two senses. The fate of all determined by the one. Even as the many were unlike the one. Those who are in Adam may not sin as he did, and yet they still die and are condemned for his sin. But at the same time, we could say the same of Christ, who is the antitype. On the other side, that many, and indeed all who are justified, are justified having lived lives which did not resemble his perfect, obedient, righteous life in any respect. And yet, they are still justified. And yet, they still live. It is not only, therefore, the fact of imputation, 
but the circumstances of it that accounts for the typology at play, the dissimilarity between uh, Adam and those who are in him, and the dissimilarity between Christ and those who are in him. Yes, indeed, as Murray says, men are justified who do not act righteously after the similitude of Christ's righteousness. Just as on the other side, men are condemned who did not sin in the likeness of Adam's sin. Or let me tell you what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. Here is the parallel. On the one hand, Adam's sin is imputed to us. On the other hand, Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. Again, let us never forget that as Adam is a figure of him that was to come, so Adam's sin is imputed to us in exactly the same way that Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. It is our union with Adam that accounts for all our trouble. It is our corresponding union with Christ that accounts for our salvation. And so... To speak of Adam as a type of Christ is to speak of the parallel that exists between them as two heads of humanity. Here is the great thing to be seen. The thing which will later be explained now in verses 15 through 17. The sense in which Christ, or excuse me, Adam is a type of Christ. How so? Because what God does for mankind in Christ resembles what he was doing in Adam. As one man sins, so many die. So also as one man obeys, many are justified and live. In this, Adam is a type of Christ. He anticipates Christ and mirrors what he will later do. As in Adam, so also in Christ. That is the formula. What is true of us in Adam is later true of us in Christ. And and we will see that this is ultimately the bedrock of our assurance. That just as surely as we were in Adam, now by faith God has placed us objectively into Jesus Christ. And that is the basis, not only of salvation, but of assurance and certainty. It is what is true of me in the objective realm. Just as it is objectively true to say, the reason I die is because of Adam's sin. So I can also say by faith, I now live and I will reign in righteousness and life along with Jesus Christ because I am in him. That is the great thing to be seen. But let me say just one last thing, beginning to anticipate the argument to verses 15 through 17, where he outlines the sense in which Adam is a type of Christ. Just as soon as we notice the similarity and the parallel and the mirror of one to the other, and we accept this is true, we immediately notice something else. And that is insofar as Adam is a type of Christ, we not only see that Christ operates according to the same principle, and that is the, solidar- uh, the principle of solidarity, the relation of all to the one, but we also see, and we cannot help but see, the greater glory of the one Jesus Christ. The way in which he surpasses, the antitype surpasses the type in every way. And so we are not surprised to find, actually, when Paul goes on to explain the typological significance of Adam, what he stresses is not the similarity, but the dissimilarity and the greater glory of Jesus Christ and of the gospel. For the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the the one man's offense the many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of 
the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to the many. And so he will go on uh, to the end of verse 17 and really to the end of the chapter. And by God's grace, soon we will see that. Amen. And let us now come to the table. Looking at the words of institution as they're found in Mark chapter 14, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to them and said, take eat. This is my body. Then he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And when they all and they all drank from it and he said to them, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you. I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Well, it's the same truth being taught here that's later taught uh, in verses 15 through 19, where we get to see the other side of the contrast, Jesus Christ. And what is consistently stressed is the way his work becomes the basis of the salvation of many. And how does he do so? Well, he stresses here the fact of his blood by which a new covenant is ratified. A new covenant, which Hebrews tells us, uh, quoting Jeremiah, involves uh, the fact that God will no longer remember our sins. He will forgive our sins so completely that he doesn't even remember them. And number two, that he will give us the gift of the spirit. He will write his law on our hearts. And Jesus is telling us as ever to look for the fullness of the salvation that is found in the new covenant, not in ourselves, but in him. Not in ourselves, but in him. And if we look more globally, Uh, historically, we can say not in Adam, but in Christ. And so we find the fullness and the fountain of salvation all in Christ. And that is the lesson of the Lord's Supper. Jesus is telling his disciples just before he goes to the cross that we must ever look for. And even as he says in John chapter six, by faith, feed upon his very person. We must partake of him if ever we would be saved and if ever we would be we would be forgiven of our sins and find the new life of the gospel. And uh, just one more thing is a matter of assurance, because God doesn't just want us to be saved, but he wants us to know it. It's another thing I, I found Lloyd-Jones saying in his sermons on these passages. He says he's speaking of those who are justified and they know it. It's one thing to be justified. It's another thing to know it. But the means of grace, uh, especially the sacraments, are meant to bolster faith and thereby assurance. That's why it's called not just a sign, but a seal. And the purpose of a seal is to offer certainty. God placing his seal upon the church. As the Heidelberg Catechism says, just as surely as Christ shed his body and blood upon the cross, uh, just as surely then do we hold on to him in the cup and in the wine. Jesus Christ himself offered for sinners. Uh, Those are my words of invitation, words of warning, which I must also give if you lack such faith. Or even if you have yet to profess such faith in the church, then I tell you, do not come, not just yet. Uh, but but otherwise, I invite all who sincerely believe to come unto Christ in the table and let us pray together. Our father in heaven, we ask you that through this means of grace, you might greatly strengthen our faith and that you might give us more fully a sense of our participation in the new covenant 
and experience afresh and with greater vigor the blessings uh, of forgiveness and of faith and of assurance and of the writing of the law in our hearts. Let us find spiritually that we are nourished and strengthened. And we ask you above all, Lord Jesus, that you might be glorified and that we might be able through this simple and outwardly contemptible means by the standards of the world, might we be able to exercise faith, for that is really what is at issue here, our faith in Christ. May we, through these means, discern his body and blood and their true spiritual significance for the church. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.